I'm Lee Schneider. This is the Future of Food. Today's guest on the show, Brian Wang. He's a co-founder, futures thought leader, and a popular science blogger with one million readers per month. His blog, nextbigfuture.com, is ranked number one science blog. It covers many disruptive technology and trends, including space, robotics, artificial intelligence, medicine, anti-aging biotechnology, and nanotechnology. So naturally, I want to ask Brian about future food sources. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lee. So let's start with hemp is the new soy. We've heard this. What do you think of the viability of hemp becoming a new plant-based protein? My understanding is that hemp, the seed protein, is already a fairly big thing. It's about $6, $7 billion annual industry. And I, I view it as kind of competing more with the whey protein, which is about $10 billion. So those are kind of at the scale that I see things that hemp could displace whey because it's vegetable-based and has some other stuff which may push up whey to a certain extent. But soybeans are, for just straight food, is about $40 billion. And then as a, all soy-related products, about $240 billion. That's out of nearly $4 trillion dollars of the global food agricultural business. So soy is let at the 1% to 6%, 1% direct food market up to 6%. So the protein powder type thing, mainly powder, you stick it into other foods as a component is I think where hemp is playing. Um, I'm Asian, so soy is a huge thing for all kinds of culinary food. Mm-hmm. So I can't see how Asians would give up you know, all the, tofu and all that other kind of stuff that, that people eat using soy so, so a, um, as a sauce. So I don't see hemp competing in those areas and thus can't get the larger thing. But in terms of like as a, a source of protein, yeah, I think it's, it's there and, and continuing to make headway. It is so much about social engineering and habits, really. When we're talking about substitute proteins, People talk about lab-based meat, but do you think that lab-based meat would become mainstream anytime soon? Beyond Meat, Impossible Burger, these meat substitutes appear mm-hmm. to be making a strong bid for public acceptance, but it's really about the habit change as well as personal taste. Do you think they'll ever make it? In their current form, and I've tried the um, Impossible Burger and, and the mm-hmm. uh, Beyond Meat and those kind of things, and they taste taste and texture very much more like meat. If you were to give someone that hamburger, you know, just like a Pepsi Coke taste test, they might not be able to tell. Although I've had other people tell me they can detect an aftertaste and, and not quite mm. there. But I think that just getting to, you know, copying certain aspects of meat, but not making meat, you wouldn't be able to, you know, in the U.S. labeling laws, say that you're not what you, you know, pretending to be i have a difficulty seeing it getting too mainstream because there's a lot more to food preparation fat content this other things that are actually more features than anything else plus there's the whole categories of like you know the kobe beef or you know like all that kind mm. of stuff if you can get to a product that has vastly you know premium taste 
levels and somehow make that be the thing where it's like it is beyond meat it's whatever but it it not just tastes good enough to fool you but actually in some ways far superior and somehow get that to be a thing to get viral if you would say on that then i could see it becoming mainstream but they're just saying and we got the mimicking of the thing that you've had no problem with for centuries I, i don't see how it gets beyond a niche right it can be important niche for people who care about that thing go oh it's healthier but people eat all kinds of things that are not healthy and 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 you know have it like and also like someone like Warren Buffett he made a bunch of money because he could predict the future of that the Snickers bar would stay the number one chocolate bar in the US you know he he said that you know decades ago and he's been right so people to give up even you know that can you can make a better chocolate bar you can do whatever but Snickers stay number one, you know, that branding, that mm. loyalty. So someone's going to give up, you know, in an Alberga can give up. I don't see it happening in, in that way. It's, it's like the societal change, the consultant engineering thing you talk about, just, it's just too huge a, a leap. What I could see, though, is if things reach a state where people are told, you know, it's going to, meat's going to get really expensive. The land's mm-hmm. going to get expensive. The mm-hmm. process is going to get expensive, and mm-hmm. real beef from real animals is going to cost you forty-five, fifty, a hundred bucks. You know, something crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this artificial stuff, which tastes pretty good, is going to be priced at a Burger King price. What mm-hmm. will you do? That could, yeah. you know, the price factor could push people. Perhaps. Right, right. If it became very expensive, but you know, like in the old days, hundred years ago. And even in poor countries now, the the amount of disposable income or the amount of your income that you pay for food is a very high percentage. But mm. for most Americans, it's a tiny amount. So it's just like the price of gasoline. You know, I remember the 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 oil doomers and stuff like that. And you know, although we're getting off oil anyway, but you know, they were saying that once it goes to a hundred dollars a barrel, once it goes to you know, four dollars a gallon. Then no, people will change. They'll drive left. They'll do whatever, and then people just ate it. You know, like I it used to be a buck, <laughs> right. a, a barrel, uh, a gallon, and then now it's three bucks in, in California consistently. There, okay, you know, up in Europe it's seven bucks, eight bucks. Driving patterns only change marginally because I'm only driving using eight hundred gallons a year. So go from one buck to four bucks. It's like, eh, you know, I don't right. like it but I'm still going to not change. So people switching to organic, like choosing a more expensive way to eat and, and they don't care. So like that became a thing and people said, okay, I'll spend three times as much, four times as much for eggs, for this, for that, because it's organic. So, and they said, okay, it tastes marginally better or something, you know? So whatever their reasons for it, paying more, you know, it has to really start, hurting in terms of your ability to live that you'll start making the other choices and it may not be the ones that you know the beyond meat choice they could say i'll eat chicken right or i'll eat fish right which are lower you know five ten times more efficient to produce per pound per whatever than the beef right let's talk about chicken because i know that from doing a little research before we started this interview that you know a bit about grubly which is a black fly feed that farmers are feeding to chickens. Right. 
What is it, and do you think it has a future? Grubly is a startup that makes animal feed for chickens and for other pets now using black flies. So black flies are, are about 80% protein, and there's other benefits of it, but basically it's also far more efficient water-wise and can be far cheaper. So in this area, people in some other countries eat beetles, so $1.5 billion worth of edible insects. And then there's a billion dollars where you use different kinds of um, insects for uh, as a protein source. And now there's a wave to do this because of water shortages in many areas. This thing is like 100 times more efficient with water. Hmm. Grubly has started off raising the the flies, but then big countries, um, start, France, Asia, other places, started putting big money into these um, black fly and other insect farms. And um, so then they said, well, we, let's not compete with that. Let's just um, be on the, on the consumer brand end, source our... Um, our flies and then sell them as as feed and, and the pet food industry is, is, a, is a big area plus animal feed in general you know i think 30 billion dollars for for pet food and then 70 billion dollars the u.s 70 billion dollars for animal feed globally 400 billion dollars for animal feed so about 10 percent of all agriculture is that one third of the um, the fish production goes to feeding other fish and other animals so these are big things and then traditionally it's been mealworms that that people have been using for this kind of stuff, but now black flies are the thing. And um, they're doing it on the pet food side. One, there's no ick factor. People don't care, you know, if they're giving bugs to their to their animals because if the animals eat it, then they're fine. So that's it feels an entry point into the whole supply, global um, protein supply chain. Hmm. And so that's where they're going. I, I think they're very getting some success. And I think that that also the pandemic, people raising more chickens. So I think that um, I think they have a very good possibility to succeed. And it goes similar to some of the other things we've talked about in terms of being vastly more water efficient and, and um, uh, environmentally um, lighter, lower footprint. It's interesting. I've had the crickets. I've tried crickets. Mm-hmm. And I'm aware, as you mentioned, that in many cultures, people eat all kinds of things that we may not eat here. And we may have to get used to this sort of thing. So... It's conceivable to think of our pets being kind of the leading edge consumers of this kind of protein. I don't know if I would feed my cat black flies knowingly, mm-hmm. but in 10 years from now, there may not be a choice. The cat food itself might become too expensive, and there, we might have to seek alternatives even for our pets, because that's, as you mentioned, a billion-dollar industry. People put a lot of money into taking care of and feeding pets. We have the technology, but it's about the changing the behaviors of people and the way they feed themselves and their pets. Right, right. And it's also getting to scale. Like as you, they master in this one, you know, whichever markets, you know, chicken feed, pet food, animal feed in general, where basically it's more of an industrial choice. So basically have an industrial farm and they say, okay, well, if I can get this thing and it lowers my cost by 2%, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and, it, and it works, then then I'll do it, right? So then... But and that's a huge enough thing where that industry can become ten billion dollars, hundred billion dollars, and then and can look at you know and then go culture by culture, you know, like Thailand, Africa, places that they're already eating bugs, they don't have an issue with it. And they say, okay, now 
I have a, a better, you know, bug protein product for you. And they think, oh, yeah, I eat bugs already. I don't care. Right. Mm. So then it, again, getting thinking of this four trillion dollar thing as various niches, because it doesn't have to all the same. There's these massive areas where you can, you know, get something really established and then, you know, go where the acceptance is, is okay. Yeah, that's an, I hadn't thought of that, but that's a really interesting idea. Who is Tony Siba and why should we know about him in this conversation? So Tony Siba is based in San Francisco and he has a think tank called Rethink X, where he has made a couple of um, fairly in-depth reports. The first one was on automated driving, where he talked about the future of things like Tesla and, and robo-taxis. And the most recent one is about food and agriculture. So he has made a fairly in-depth report where he has made the case that um, the cell-based food technology will become dominant for the economic arguments that you described, except it's not about that he didn't forecast that um, beef or, or the other things become hugely expensive, but he's saying that the time has come for the cell-based things to scale and to go down massively in cost. Mm-hmm. And then to go with that 40% component aspect of things, we're not eating the thing directly, but where the industry is making your your nuggets, your whatever, your processed food, and then generally that. So he's going to go with the processed food area first. And then his argument is that the biotechnology on the cell-based stuff is already there. One of his um, examples is that insulin used to be from animals, where people get for diabetics, and then Genentech created humulin, you know, the uh, produced, you know, genetically produced insulin. And then that was FDA approved in 1982 and then became 99% of the market by 2000. So then he's saying that it's more just the, the, the price and the time becomes right for the thing to scale. And then he thinks the biotech thing will marry up with the ancient thing of fermentation. Basically, we make beer, have for s- centuries and some other products. And that this will be the way that we'll industrialize food, that we'll have bats of these cells. And think there won't be any negative trade-off because the cells will be the animal cells. It's not like we're going to generate our plants. It's like, nope, we're sticking with animals, just cell form. And then we're going to produce all the different components, various things of dairy, various things of meat, components of that, not just protein, but other aspects of it. And then that will become you know, from the component side up, the, you know, dominate the food thing and the cost will keep coming down. So not that you'd be paying a hundred dollars for that, but you'd be paying like a 10 cents or something like that for, for the um, cell produced beer fermentation mass scale product. So just so I have this straight, what we're talking about is deconstructing the animal in a way, right? Starting at the cellular level, right? Yeah, and then to generate the different parts of it, and mm-hmm. um, and then look at the different applications, the different niches. You know, we take milk and then we break it into components. You know, make it for cheese, make it for other stuff. And so, if we go on the ingredient side and say, okay, we give you industrial maker of food these these things, and I say, oh yeah, I just need, you know, the that part of the um, of the milk thing not just protein, but, you know, whatever other component there is of it or the other, that part of the meat and then add it into my recipe and then it works. Right. So you start the component side and then 
maybe in the 2030s, after that's fully established and, and dominant and scaled and super cheap now, then maybe, again, certain markets will look at adopting and say, yeah, yeah, I can eat that straight up. Um, hmm. But, you know, first get to scale, get as big as regular farming. But then he also indicates that because once you, if you take away the need for half the cows, then the whole economic, because like the tipping point for electric cars versus gas cars. Once the electric cars get to 20%, they're sucking away all the profits out of the, the, um, the regular gasoline cars. And so that industry collapses so that you can get a tipping point where, you know, getting significant means you're already starting to win because you're sucking the profits out of the other guy, your enemy, mm. and then you dominate the whole picture. That's interesting, too. I want to come back over that. So you're saying in the case of electric cars, automotive, 20% would be a tipping point. If we got to 20% adoption of electric cars, that would put a real, real dent in fossil fuel vehicles. I often think of the tipping point, well, it's got to be 50%. It's got to be 80%. It has to be a big number. But mm-hmm. you're saying it could be less than 50%, maybe. Right. It could be less. Yeah. Mm. That's interesting. What can you tell us about robotic greenhouses like Ironox? Ironox is taking the, the robotic arms like out of the um, car and motor factories and then applying that to making greenhouses, which is a centuries-old technology, um, more efficient. So greenhouses are already 10 times more productive, up to 10 times more productive than a regular farm just because you control the temperature, reducing the water usage, and, and keeping the bugs out without using fertilizer. Ironox thinks that they can triple that by using robotic arms. They're looking at about three robot arms per acre, and they also use seed trays. Seed trays about the size of um, a um, pallet, wood pallet that you use in warehouses. So they move the pallets around with the seed trays, and then they're handling that and, and managing their seeds and their plants in, a, in an automated and faster and more efficient way. So they're reducing the cycle times and just making it easier to grow food. But they're looking at it that okay, I can get one acre of my iron ox thing is equal to 30 acres of the regular farm. I can stick that in little warehouses or office, cheap office spaces around the city. And then I can do what the five-star restaurant in, in Napa, the um, French Laundry, the farm-to-table thing. Where basically, if I harvest my food, my vegetables, mm-hmm. An hour before I cook it, the freshness, the taste is better. So by getting the food right there, they can make more restaurants be able to have the farm-to-table experience. That's fascinating. It actually jumps me ahead to a question. I do want to ask you about mass greenhouse production going on in China in a moment. But the small farm, big farm, small, big, a lot of when we think of technical and technological solutions to food, often the words we use are efficiency, scaling, bigger. It's all about big, big, big. But there's a whole other stream of people working, if you will, on the other side of the fence, the small farmer people, the people who say go local, the people who say small farms are going to save the world and Mm -hmm. localization is going to save the world. But what you just said kind of punched a bit of a hole in that, the idea that you could have a smaller footprint, at least that you could have more localized application of greenhouse technology, if I'm saying that right. And then you could have a farm-to-table experience, but it's 
a technological experience as well. Right. Yeah, so basically you're, you're making a mass scale of what is currently this niche premium experience where, you know, getting that fresher food, and most people don't have fresher food. Like I was from Canada in, you know, the Midwest, Saskatchewan, North Dakota, and we would get food from California because I, I met a farmer who's, you know, when I was working, who, um, you know, his family had been sending food to where I lived couple of days by truck and they have to gas the plants the, the vegetables so that they they harvest them more not fully ripe mm-hmm. gas them to make them appear ripe but not actually ripen them and then get them into the interior over several days so i was always getting food that tasted inferior and has fewer nutrients when i was living in that middle part of the country because i wasn't near the the, the food and then the other thing was that um, when I came to California and then went to, you know, cherry picking, something like that, I didn't realize that a fresh cherry fresh off the tree could crunch. I had no mm. idea. I thought they were, you know, soft or whatever. So getting ultra fresh food right off the plant, right off the whatever, is an entirely different experience. It's one more nutritious. It tastes a lot better. And being able to get that for everyone, do it so that this becomes cheap and available. All this stuff that's premium and really great that people will want to pay, already are paying $500 a meal for, we can bring that down to 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. We can make that available like McDonald's all over, right? That, I, I'm more on the optimistic side that we're going to be able to make Kobe beef the thing that people taste it, they love it, it is vastly superior. We can make that possible. So it's that we can make the, and that will, what will be what everyone will want is that fresher, better tasting food at an affordable price, fresher, better premium meat at an affordable price. That is the, the future that I see. That's a good optimistic way of thinking about it. A lot of the time with the more technically oriented people, they're not thinking locally enough. It's a lot of this industrial farming, you know, it's in the, like you're saying, middle of the country, things have to be gassed, there's a huge shipping distance between the farm and the table. But what if we use technology or these advances, what if we used a different way of thinking about where this all happens and where the food is produced? Mm -hmm. I think it also goes to the whole aspect of urbanization mm. that people went to the cities you know off the farms. it used to be you know nine percent farms and ten percent cities even less and then we made the farms more productive and then fewer people were on the farms and then and then 80 percent of the people are in the cities but then the last 20 percent. so it's like if the cities become independent where they're growing their own food where one it's if the people are there and if you can do it better and more efficient and it tastes better, everything else is better, 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 then why do you have everything produced inefficiently in these vast open spaces? It, it has an impact on the fact that we, you know, we could then go 100% urban, mm-hmm. but in a different way, where basically it's like where we reduce our footprint. Instead of taking up 80% of the land to support human civilization, it goes down to 10%. You know, but that's a huge change. It will be mean that the the farm lifestyle, 
the rural areas, you know, go away. It, it, every place becomes like Singapore. But it may not, it doesn't have to be high density. It can be still the sub, suburban experience. We still have those choices. Suburbs are the dominant form of the U.S. People won't necessarily give that up just to because you know, the, the extra 20% from living in high rises, people have chosen, yes, I could do that. I can move to New York if I want to. And I don't. So, so that kind of thing is when I think of it as a futurist is that, um, that the localization will happen because it makes more sense. Although every bit of efficiency doesn't have to happen because, you know, cows are 10 times less efficient than chicken and fish and we still eat cows. Mm-hmm. So you still have the choice. So not everything has to happen just because of efficiency. But if that was only the only thing stopping something from happening and that goes away, then you could see more of that um, unblocked choice happening. I like the optimism. <laughs> I mm-hmm. like the, the way you're thinking about this. What can you tell me about mass greenhouse production going on in China? China has one-fourth of the land for farming that the U.S. does, but they have four times the people. So they need to be 16 times more efficient. So previously, you know, centuries ago, you know, a lot of greenhouses were made in, um, I think, uh, Denmark and other places for that whole tulip farming thing. But, you know, the tulip mania from 200 years ago. But over the last decade or two, China has 90% of the greenhouses. And they did it by mass producing the plastic sheeting and just uh, sticking up pretty crude greenhouses. It doesn't get to the full 10 times um, more efficiency over outdoor land because they're kind of like they're covering it, but they're not totally sealing it up in all cases. Um, so you have these sheets on, um, you know, steel or aluminum poles or whatever they are, but they're twice as, as productive. So China now has, you know, a significant percentage is increasing all the time, not uh, as well tracked up around, I think, 3 million hectares out of the, you know, however many, 50 million. So up around 2, 3%. So China, as we know, makes a Shanghai-sized amount of urban buildings every year or two. So they can build like crazy. So for them, putting up a bunch of sheeting, which is, you know, 20 times, 100 times cheaper than putting up a, a building, they can cover things over, make structures very easily. And that gives them twice as much food or, you know, they make it a little better four times, 10 times, you know, clearly they'll do it. Is that something to be emulated or do you think it only works there? I think that it can be emulated that as, as they do it themselves, okay, they, they you know, double and then quadruple their food production and then they mastered this thing of producing mass, you know, truly mass produced greenhouses on, you know, this massive scale. They could they could export it to other places. It may not go to the U.S. or most parts of the U.S. or to, to Europe because, but you know, maybe some densely populated areas, places that are land short, mm. um, could or or arable land short, or they could say, okay, yeah, I don't have enough proper land to grow it. I have troubles growing, wanting to grow them. And so I, I, I'll do it. Places that actually are nowhere near the, the, the line of having real problems growing enough food, which is the U.S., even though there are people concerned about it, the U.S. and Canada, Australia, do not have a problem 
just taking more land and just growing stuff. So it'll be the places that are land short, maybe certain parts of Africa, certain parts of Asia. They could say, oh, yeah, let me look at this greenhouse option. We've certainly covered a lot of ground, and I learned a lot, and I really appreciate your knowledge and varied perspective in all of this. So thanks for joining me on the show today. Great to join you, Julie. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the episode today. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get show notes and more at futurex.fm. Future of Food is part of the Future X Network. I'm Lee Schneider.